0: Good morning again. Grace and peace to you. A few years back, <clears throat> excuse me, the Marines had this little slogan that they always put on TV, the Marines are looking for a few good men. And I think they might still use it from time to time, but now they've got some other things going on, but. Um, I always, always think about that and you know that God is looking for some people to serve Him and to do things uh, extraordinary, or as, you know, we, we look at them as maybe common, but God sees them as extraordinary. Uh, many of us uh, have worked for companies. And when they're looking to uh, for a position, for someone to fill a position, they uh, you fill out a resume, right? And you put on there your background, uh, the experience you've had, whatever you've been able to do. Uh, maybe you put your college degree, your high school graduate. Maybe you went to technical school for something. Uh, your skills you have, machinery you can operate, you know, whether you can type or design websites or, uh, you know, run a bulldozer maybe, Uh, what software you can use, use a jackhammer, or maybe you're a brain surgeon. Maybe you can do both. You know, I don't know. You put all that stuff down there, and you hope you get hired, and, of course, there's the interview process, and somebody gets chosen for the job. Do you ever wonder how God chooses people And God does choose people, doesn't He? Because the scriptures tell us that. We want to talk about that this morning. What are His criteria? He want the most intelligent, the hardest working, the ones with the most physical stamina, because sometimes it takes a lot of stamina to keep going. How about the fearless, the best educated? But the most righteous, the holiest, are these the ones God chooses? Do we have a wrong impression of the ones that God chooses? And we think God will never choose me because I've done this or I've done that or I can't do this or I don't do that. Just what kind of people does God call? I want to look at four individuals this morning. I want to look at their resumes, if you will. And see the kind of people that God calls and God uses. First of all, we want to look at Abraham. Great man of faith. In fact, we even talk about the faith of Abraham, don't we? He was called from Ur of the Chaldees, just you know, evidently out of the blue. God shows up to Abraham living there, and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave. I'm going to show you a country where I'm going to give to your descendants. Just an amazing story. We don't even know all the details of it. And God promised to make of him a great nation, that his people would be more than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea that through him all the people of the earth would be blessed. And we know as we know the end of that story that he was talking about the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God who would come later. And God made a covenant with him. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. He became the father of the Hebrew nation from whom the Messiah would come, who would be the blessing to all the world, to all nations, not just the Hebrews or the Jews, but to eventually to all the Gentiles and to all peoples. And we read there, let's go to James 2 then. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? That's another thing that he did. He obeyed God. And you know when God says, oh, Abraham, I want you to offer up your son. And this Isaac was the son of promise, the one they had waited for for so long. And then now he says, Abraham, I want you to offer him up. And we read in Genesis there, it says, early the next morning, Abraham got up. you go to the mountain where he was to sacrifice. No delay, no putting it off. 22, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the work, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Wow. What a man. What a man. An amazing man of God. Wouldn't you like God to say that about you? You're my friend. However, Abraham lied twice about his wife to protect his own skin. When he once when he went down into Egypt, he lied to Pharaoh. He said, no, nah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You know, she was his half-sister, but you know, that wasn't all the truth. He was playing a game. He didn't, have the, he didn't have the faith then that God would protect him. And then later he did pretty much the same thing with Abimelech, who it appears was a king of the Philistines at the time. And God sent a great plague on Abimelech, and Abimelech finds out, oh, wow, this is really uh, Abram's wife. And he chastises Abram. He says, what are you doing to me? I brought your wife into my house, and now I've got all this plague and everything, and my, my people are uh, the the women can't get pregnant anymore abraham had to confess yeah yeah she's my half sister when god came down in person he was checking out sodom and gomorrah and abraham had had him in the tent and he prepared the uh, the feast for him there and the sacrifice and they had the meal And uh, God reiterated to Abraham, he says, you know, this was when Abraham was getting up there, almost 100. He says, no, you're still going to have a child. What did Abraham do? He laughed. Sure. He didn't believe him that time. And he and Sarah tried to fulfill God's promise by using Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, to have the son. They had a son, Ishmael. Caused him a lot of trouble later, a lot of grief. Yet Abram was called the friend of God. Does that trouble you? Does it cause you to wonder about God? To question him? What did God know? How can God do that? You know, that's an important question for us to answer. To understand how God works. Let's look at Moses. Called by God at the burning bush in Mount Sinai to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery. What an honor. You're the man. I want you to go. He confronted Pharaoh on numerous occasions. You read through the book of Exodus. He and Aaron was with him, of course. He went in before Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. I can't imagine what that was like. This, this poor shepherd, of course he had been in Pharaoh's house a long time ago, 40 years before this. No, actually it would have been eight, yeah, 40 years before this. He's out here tending sheep. He's probably pretty much forgotten about all that. And here he walks in, you know, with his dingy old robe on and his staff into this great palace. <coughs> Gold, tapestries, you know, all the glitter, all these guards, all these idols. Kind of intimidating. But he apparently wasn't intimidated because he was believing in God and he walked in there and let my people go and then through, through him God performed all those ten, great ten plagues so that Pharaoh would release Israel to go serve him in the wilderness and to become his people. He led the people out of Egypt. Pillar of fire and the pillar of the cloud. And then, you remember the story at the Red Sea? Stretch out your rod. God sent the wind. They walked through on dry ground. Then he led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. You know, being the go-between there when so many times they rebelled and God was wanting to get rid of them. And Moses says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, if you do that, that's going to show that you're kind of a weak God, and you can't bring your people through, but you can't do what you want with them. And numbers 12, verse three, Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And in verse six, he said, "Hear now my words, if there is a prayer, this is God speaking. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision I shall dream or speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. he is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings and he beholds the form of the Lord. why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? Against Moses, and that's when actually Aaron and Miriam were contending there and wanting a bigger place in leading Israel. Wow, he's faithful in all my house. Yet, Moses was a murderer, wasn't he? Killed Egyptian and buried him in the sand and hoped nobody would see it. Fled for his life from Pharaoh. Lived for 40 years with his father in law Jethro. Had a wife and kids. One, two, had two sons. And he lived. in freedom while his people were in bondage. He lived in freedom for 40 years under the stars and the sun watching Jethro's flocks. When God did call him at Sinai he made excuses left and right. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. That's what he ended up saying. First of all he said I can't talk. He said I can't and he finally said, Lord, why don't you just pick somebody else? Remember that? I just don't want to do it. God wouldn't let him off the hook. Now, why would you pick someone who actually said, I don't want to do this, and say, yes, you are. You're going to do it for me. You ever think about that? Of course, we remember where at the time he failed to honor God Elevated his own own self and struck the rock and says, must we bring forth water? God says, "Uh, because you didn't honor me in front of the people, you can't go in to the land of promise. Yet Moses was called by God, faithful in all my household. that put more questions in your mind than answers? How does God work? What does God know that we don't know? And then, uh, well, then there's David. Chosen by God to be king of Israel. To replace a corrupted king Saul. Shirley and I have been reading through 1 Samuel right now, and there's some amazing things here about David. We may be studying 1 Samuel on Wednesday night. He was the youngest of eight brothers, yet he was chosen to be king. It's called the sweet psalmist of Israel, and if you read those psalms that he wrote, insightful, moving, He loved God, he trusted God, he had faith in God, he believed in God. I don't think anyone more in Scripture reveals his heart to us than David does, except maybe God himself. In all those songs. Slew Goliath, stood up to the giant with his sling, trusted God that God would Give him that victory. He says the victory belongs to the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to God. He subdued Israel's enemies around after he became king, brought peace. He assembled the materials for building the temple. he built himself a house, nice house, palace. I don't know if you'd even call it a palace. It's just a nice house. And then he realized, you know, God's still living in this tabernacle, this tent he goes to God about it, and God says, no, I'm sorry, you've, you've had too much blood on your hands, but your son, he'll build me a house. And David assembled the materials. Remember, he got with Hiram of Tyre and brought the cedars and the gold, and it was all there ready to go. And then he received this wonderful promise from God that someone would always sit on his throne for the rest of time. That's incredible. No other king ever received such a promise in the annals of history. Acts thirteen twenty two. After he had removed him, I think this is Paul talking. Pretty sure it is talking about Saul. Saul had disobeyed and disappointed God. After he, meaning God, had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Wow, you couldn't hardly have anything better said about a person. man after God's own heart he will do all my will. He must walk on water. But, but, David was a terrible father. Did you know that? Read about Absalom, Amnon. Not a very good father when it came to those boys. And, of course, we all remember his adultery with Bathsheba and participating in the murder. He was called a murderer by Nathan. Nathan. Her husband, Uriah. And then later on, he numbered Israel. God had said, the only time I ever want you to number Israel is when I I say to do it. And this was so they would not start trusting in how many people and how many soldiers they had, but they would still trust in the living God. But David went on his own and numbered Israel. God got upset, sent a plague, and 70,000 men died. 70,000 died because of what David did, numbering Israel. Yet David is a man after God's own heart who will do all his will. Wow. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Our last one, Peter. Peter was a leader among the apostles, he was in the inner circle. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. He was in Gethsemane. They all went to Gethsemane, but then you remember the other three, Peter, James, and John, went further with Jesus. He needed their comfort, their encouragement. But they still, you know, fell asleep. God had revealed to him that Jesus was a Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that? Jesus had them in Caesarea Philippi and He says, "Who's the crowd saying I am? Uh, Elijah, one of the prophets." And then he says, "And what about you? Who do you say that I am?" Peter spoke up. "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Peter or Jesus says, "Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but God. What a privilege!" have that revealed to you in your mind, in your heart, that this Jesus in the flesh is actually the Son of God. To know that. But that revelation came to Peter. He was privileged to stand up and proclaim the gospel for the first time on Pentecost. Yeah, all the other apostles stood up, but... Peter must have spoken the loudest or whatever because his message is the one recorded for us in Acts. You have crucified your Messiah. God who raised him to his right hand. He's both Lord and Christ. What do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you for the remission of your sin, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First time human ears ever heard anything like that. Peter spoke it. And then later, he was the one chosen and sent by God to reveal this gospel message to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. And he did that. John 1, 41, Andrew, speaking of Andrew, says, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, or the Anointed One, that's what it means. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, and it means a stone or a rock. I did a little little searching here because I think it's interesting to understand why this would be significant. The Hebrew Simeon, and even in some translations later on in the book of Acts, Paul refers to Peter as Simeon. That's his Hebrew name, Simon. Means hearing, all right, hearing or possibly little hyena beast. Now, how would you like to go around with a name meaning that? In the Greek, the Greek is Simon, and that means flat-nosed. How about that? Hey, flat-nosed, how you doing? Talk about insults. Talk about being politically correct. Okay? Now, Peter is the Greek, and Cephas is actually the Aramaic. And they both mean a rock or a stone. So to be called that, you know, that's a that's a comeuppance, isn't it? That's a rise there for Peter because that sounds like a whole lot better to me to be called a rock than to be called flat-nosed. And of course, he was, in a sense, a rock among the disciples, the early disciples. Standing firm for Jesus, standing in the face of persecution. You read it in the book of Acts. He stood up there when they were arrested a couple times and in prison. And he stood firm. He was a rock. However, however, Not soon after Peter made that confession that God had revealed to him and Jesus had said, I have to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter said, Lord, far be it from you. Jesus looked, turned around, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you do not savor the things of God but of men. Imagine that. Of course, we all know that there on that night, Peter made the huge boast, I'll die with you, Lord. I'll die with you. I'll never leave you. And then later on, he denied three times even that he knew him. I don't even know the man, he said. Denied him. And then later on, even after he'd gone to Cornelius' house, he was in Antioch where there were a lot of Gentile Christians, Christian of Gentile background. He was eating with them and fellowshiping with them. And then there was a group came from Jerusalem, and this was a group that was saying, you know, all these Gentiles need to follow, keep the law of Moses, and the men have to be circumcised. Of course, that was not true, and Paul argued for that, and we know it wasn't true. But when those men came, what did Peter do? Peter left associating with the Gentile Christians, and he went to associate with the Jews, the Jewish ones. We read in Galatians where Paul rebuked him to his face for it. He says, that's not the gospel. That's not what we do. We're all one. Yeah, Peter is called the rock. Where does this leave us? Well, I hope in a good place. Going back to first Samuel and then we're going to the Psalms there as we finish out. And I hope, you know. I want this lesson to give us encouragement. It may be somebody you know that is discouraged. And they're saying in their, saying to you, or you're saying to yourself, or you're speaking to God, and saying, look at all the things I've done. Look at all my failures, how I did You know, I did this back, you know, in uh, 94, and I did this in 2003, and I keep stumbling over this. God will never use me because I'm tainted. I've been divorced. I was in jail. I, I was unfaithful for five years. What's God going to say? What do you think he would say after this lesson? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees. I'm afraid some of us in the church have never learned this verse. Not only about ourselves, but about other people. But we still look at the way men look at people. At their past, at their failings, at all the troubles they've had. And we say, no, no. They'll never make it. We don't want them. They shouldn't be a part of us. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What is the heart? Yeah, you know, we looked at those four this morning. There's others. I, you know, I could have made this a nice long lesson. You know, But it's another great thing about the scriptures that shows the fallibility of all the people pretty much that followed the Lord. They were not perfect. They were not without sin. They were not without their weaknesses. But God still used them. He still called them. He knew exactly who they were and what they had done. And even, I think, he anticipated what they might do. But he said, it doesn't matter. Because I know the kind of person you are on the inside. And you want to serve me. And God is pretty much saying, that's the thing I can work with. Your heart. If you want to serve me, I can work with that. But he sure can't work with someone who doesn't want to serve God. Psalm thirty-one. This is you know, I look for a nice a good scripture to close this out. I was thinking about the one in Zechariah where it says, not by strength or power, but by my might, and there's other ones. The race is not to the fast and so forth. Uh, whatever that is in Ecclesiastes. I can't quote it now. But then the Lord led me to this one. And this is one to remember. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. God God sees everything, everyone. There's nothing hidden from his sight, as we read in another place. So don't think that God does not know you, what you've done, what's even in your heart and in your mind. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He says, I made you. I made you. You don't know. You don't think I know what I made. He who understands all their works. All right, I'm. I got a misprint here. I'm in Psalm thirty-three. I'm. Psalm thirty-three. That's my mistake. Shall I start over? 13. All right. I don't know how I have it in the right place in my Bible, but not the right place even on my, uh, even on my lesson. All right. Psalm thirty three thirteen. 13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So he knows us all. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works, he knows everything you do. He knows what's in your heart. The king is not saved by a mighty army. And here I think he's starting to say that this is the kind of people that he wants. They understand these things. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. This, again, is a concept that this is about God and not about us. Sure, we might need to have an army. Sure, we might need to have an education. Sure, we need to know the Bible. But that doesn't matter if God is not with you. And you're not totally and completely trusting God to help you in whatever you're doing. We're never on our own. We're never to be on our own. Never. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. There's where it starts. They fear him. You fear God, you respect God, you reverence God, you're in awe of God. That's the kind of people he wants. On those who hope for his loving kindness. Notice the contrast. We fear and we respect God. Yes, he's the creator, he's our judge and the lawgiver. But on the other hand, we hope for that loving kindness or grace or mercy. We understand he's like that too. And that's where our hope lies in his forgiveness. It's not about being perfect. We have really got to jettison the idea of trying to be perfect. It's not going to happen. We've got to strive to be good and righteous. But we try too hard to be perfect, meaning sinless. That won't happen. It just won't happen. And so we trust in his loving kindness, in his mercy. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. that God will take care of us. Whether he's talking about death, the final death, maybe. Maybe just walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as David said in Psalm 23. Alive in famine, in the hard times. God will take care of us. It's not about how much food you have on your table. It's the fact that God is with you. our soul waits for the lord he is our help and our shield those are the people god wants they wait for him to show us the way to give us strength to show us what to do he's our help and our shield it's not me it's not the government all right it's not our military not my own intelligence. It's God. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. We trust in the name of God to deliver us. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. There's the person God wants. There's the person God can work with. Despite your failings, despite your weaknesses, despite what you've done in the past, God is a master at forgiveness. And he says, I remember your sins no more. We can't seem sometime to get that in our head. We want to remember them, and God has forgotten them. So remember, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, and there's others. Yes, they were great men of God, friend of God, the rock, man after God's own heart. They had terrible failings. But they turned again, and they served the Lord, and God said, okay, let's keep going. Don't look to your failings. Don't look to your weaknesses. Look to God. As we close out, if anyone needs prayer this morning, maybe you're struggling with some kind of weakness in your life. Maybe you'd like strength from the Lord. Maybe you're just looking at it the wrong way. We'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, Maybe you're being tempted. The devil is hard on your heels, as we might say. We're here to pray with you and pray for you. If you're of the mind to obey the gospel this morning and entrust your heart and your life to this Jesus, to this God, who will forgive you for any and everything you've done and will continue to do so as long as you serve him. We're ready to assist you in that obedience. Please come while we stand and sing.